Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see change lives, and we hope that this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy this message. Good morning. Hey, it's good to see you guys. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors at the Valley. Man, if that worship didn't get you pumped up, that video didn't get you pumped up, you know, have your neighbor check your pulse. You might be dead, okay? So I, you know, I wanna make sure you're okay this morning. Well, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors, like I said. Today we start a four-week series called Victory. In sports, how do you know which team is moving towards victory? You look at the scoreboard, right? The scoreboard tells you the score. During this series, we're gonna look at what is Jesus' scoreboard for a victorious life. In other words, in Jesus' eyes, what does victory look like? It was my eighth grade year and I decided to play soccer. Um, I played one year in every sport. I played football, I tried to play basketball. Oddly enough, every sport I played, um, I had the same position, bench, okay? So while I was sitting on the bench, I'm watching the game, and good news, my team was undefeated. One of our star defenders, we'll call him Neil, Neil was having a good game. It was against our rivals. We were, like, honestly winning, like, six to zero every game in soccer. This was the one team we knew could beat us. And so, but Neil was having the game of his life. Nobody could get past him. He was on his way to victory, and then he saw his opening. You know, as a defender in soccer, you don't get to score a lot, but there are these rare moments where you see an opening and you take it. So Neil took the ball and started dribbling, dribbled past one defender, then the next, then the next, and people are starting to wonder, why is Neil not a power for, a forward, right? Neil, boom, first kick I saw him take in a game towards goal, boom, right in the upper left-hand corner, boom. Neil's, it, like, this was our rival, guys. So Neil's arms went up in, like, victory. He started cheering. He started running around. Then he ran over to his teammates to do, like, the chest bump, and he saw his teammates, and instead of screaming in excitement, they were holding their heads like this because Neil had just scored in the wrong goal. He got about 20 seconds into his celebration before he realized he was striving for the wrong goal. You know, in a game it's one thing, but think about how bad it would be for us in our lives if we went after the wrong goal. Because worst case scenario, that game was gonna be over and how long soccer games last, right? But man, you've got hopefully 10, 20, 30, 40 years left on this earth, and what I don't want for you or for me is for us to spend our lives working so hard in the wrong direction. I would hate for any of us to get to the end of our lives, throw our hands up, and realize that we spent our lives living for the wrong things. In our culture, um, we understand what we think our world thinks victory is. Just look on Facebook or Instagram, you can see that victory is about how much money you make. It's about your career, how much money does your career make, or how much respect does it get you. Popularity is the goal, right? Like nobody brags about how few followers they have. Nobody says, I've got three followers, but man, we're best friends. No, people brag about how many. Health and beauty are an obsession. Right? I mean, just look at your Instagram, your Facebook, your social media feed. You know, like, they're kind of saying the message that everyone should be 24 and have six-pack abs for their whole life. Um, It's not working for me. I don't know how you're doing, but it hasn't worked for me. But what does the church say victory is? Well, I think in the church, I think we would honestly admit that, that victory is asking Jesus to forgive your sins, right? 
Like when someone asked Jesus to forgive their sins, that's victory. But I wanna be honest, that vision that we have is good, but today we're gonna read a passage of scripture where Jesus defines victory a little bit bigger than what we have ever been thought or taught. So if you're here with me today or online, open your Bibles to Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 21. Here's the background you need to know in order to understand this passage. Jesus is going to his hometown. And there's a, at this point already, there's a buzz about Jesus. This is his first sermon in the Gospel of Luke. He goes to his hometown, good place to start. His hometown is this little place called Nazareth. And everybody's wondering, could Jesus be the Messiah? The town named Nazareth, it was an apt name. It's literally from the Hebrew word Natsar, which means tree. Jesus is literally grew up in Sticktown. Right? He grew up in the sticks. Nazareth was not the big urban center. It was a small rural community that people thought nothing good could come out of Nazareth. It probably, its population, depending on which commentator you look at, was probably 100 at the lowest and 400 at the biggest. So when Jesus stepped up into this synagogue, he knew everyone he was speaking to. These were people that had seen Jesus grow up. And if you're a Jew living in the first century, you feel like you are poor and oppressed. You see, the Roman government occupied the land of Israel for a long time at this point, and they taxed the Jewish people mercilessly. Even if you had a good business and a good income, even if you worked your fingers to the bone, you think our taxes are bad, theirs were worse. If you made a lot of money, that just meant that the Romans would take more. And several Jewish people had come along and said that they were the Messiah, and Messiah was their word for king. It was their idea that in the prophets, if you read in the Old Testament, God promised that someday he would free his people from poverty, from oppression, from their sin through this king. And so prior to the time of Jesus, anybody that stood up and said, hey, I'm the new king, I'm the Messiah, the Roman government was merciless and would waste no time in dispatching any would-be political revolutionaries. And so Jesus walks in to give his first sermon and looks upon his hometown and sees people who have been poor, oppressed their whole lives, people who are feeling the weight of their sin and guilt. And here is his first sermon. Let me read it to you in Luke chapter four, verses 16 through 20. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Let me point out to you that this shows that Jesus not only made a point of going to synagogues and preaching, this is Luke's way of telling you, this is Jesus' like sermon A. This is the first one he preaches to people. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Jesus picked the scripture he was reading. Out of all the ones in Isaiah, this is the one he chose to define victory, to define his game plan. Verse 18, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They're probably wondering, is he gonna say he's the Messiah? Verse 21, he began by saying to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
I wanna take you back to that first synagogue in Nazareth today, and I want you to realize that these people are sitting there poor and oppressed, waiting for God's king to come and free them from their political, spiritual, their financial exile, right? And Jesus steps up, everyone's eyes are fastened on him. And we know from like archeological evidence that this is one of the most famous passages of scriptures that everyone was preaching on. But they would preach it and say, their sermon would be, and someday the Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna do all these things. Someday this will happen. They preached it as in the future. What was amazing in this passage is that Jesus preaches it, sits down in a one sentence sermon Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I am here, let's go, baby, right? It's important to understand that I I wouldn't have you think of this as a simple sermon, really. This is more, in our culture, this is better understood as like a president's inaugural speech, and here's why. The very first line, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. That word for anointed is the word that in Hebrew translate as, it's the verb of Messiah. In other words, Jesus is saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has Messiahed me or he has kinged me, right? And then Jesus says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. When we hear the word good news, we mean it about anything. Good news, pizza's half off today, right? Good news, my team won the Super Bowl. Good news, you know, my kids, you only get to eat cookies today, right? Like, like that, that, we use good news to mean anything. But in their world, good news, that word euangelion in Hebrew, basar, it was used most often for a royal announcement. When a new king came to power, he would send people throughout the empire, this is before news media, he would literally send people out to proclaim the good news that a new king was in charge, and then they would share all the things that this new king was gonna do. This is Jesus' inaugural speech saying, here is my mission, here is my victory. Now that Jesus is king, what we consider victory in the world is turned upside down. I mean, think about it. In our world, the rich win, right? The people with the most money get to do what they want, when they want. Jesus says, in my kingdom, the poor are gonna have hope. In our world, freedom to do what you want, when you want, is kind of prized above all else. Jesus says, I am here, and the oppressed are gonna win in and through me. I am gonna set them free. In our world, the healthy, the healthy and beautiful win. Jesus says, the sick, I am going to take care of them. I am going to heal them. Jesus comes and turns everything upside down about what we think victory is. And I think in the church, if you were to say, what is the gospel, most people would say, well, the gospel is that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins so that I can go to heaven. And that is true and good, and that is part of the gospel, but that is not what Jesus or anyone else meant by the gospel. In Jesus' kingdom, victory is bigger than having your sins forgiven. It includes having your sins forgiven, but it's bigger. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I have a picture that's gonna appear on the screen of a rock. It's a good rock, okay? It's a good couple of rocks. It's a good tree. It's a zoomed in picture and you can see, yes, that is, it's beautiful. There's a mountain back there. Don't know which one, but it's probably nice. The stone is interesting. There's trees growing out of it. And this is what we tend to do to the gospel. We zoom in on the fact that Jesus forgives our sins, which is true. That's a true picture. But if we zoom out and see the big picture, we see something much more beautiful. Zoom out. It's a picture of the Grand Canyon. 
I don't know if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon in person. I heard somebody once say I went to it, it was a hole in the ground, big deal, right? Like, and I get that, but when I saw the Grand Canyon, it literally took my breath away. And that's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus is doing in this first sermon, right? The gospel is the good news that Jesus is king. And it's so wonderful, it's so amazing, it should take our breath away because if Jesus is king, then the king can pardon and forgive our sins. But for those in poverty, a king can also give hope to them. If you're sitting here today trapped in poverty, whether through your own choices or circumstances, Jesus says, I have come to give the poor hope. If you're here today and sick, Jesus says, the gospel is I am king and I can give the sick hope. If you're here today and you feel like you're oppressed, you're struggling with addictions or your past or you feel like your family is broken, Jesus says, my gospel is good for that too. One of the things we want you to understand with this series, this victory, is the good news includes a lot more than what we were thought or taught. You see, the gospel just isn't the answer to our sin problem. It is the answer to every problem. For those of you that are getting baptized today, I want you to know that when you go down in the water, it symbolizes Jesus taking away your sins, absolutely. But when we rise you up from the water, it symbolizes the new life Jesus wants you to have. And it's more than just about washing away your sins. It's about understanding that Jesus cares about every part of your life and in every area, he wants to give you a new life. And that's true for you today, for any of you who have said yes to Jesus. Man, he cares, he wants to take away your sins. He also wants to remove those dark places of your life that you're afraid to admit to anyone else. If you're struggling what to do with your career, he wants to give you wisdom and direction. If you're struggling with conflict in your family or at work, he wants to bring peace and hope in your life. If you're trying to figure out a job situation, how to feed your family, all those things, those are things Jesus cares about too. There is an incredible amount of hope in this passage. But there's also a challenge for us as followers of Jesus and for us corporately as a church. Because if the gospel is just bigger than our sins for being forgiven, then as followers of Jesus, we need to change our scoreboard. Should we be asking in our church how many people have said yes to Jesus and asked him to forgive their sins? Absolutely, that's on Jesus' scoreboard. But we should also be asking ourselves that how are the poor doing in our city? How are the poor doing in our church? How are the poor doing around me? How are sick people doing around me? Are they finding comfort and hope? Because if Jesus cares about every area of someone's life, then we have to as well. And in each week of this series, I want you to come back because we're gonna be talking about, thanks to Jesus' kingdom, the sick win, the oppressed win, the, the lost win. But today we're gonna focus in on this idea of, in Jesus' kingdom, the poor win. So what does that look like for you and me to say the poor win? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that in Jesus's world, you could be poor for a number of different reasons. That title could apply to you if a couple of different things were going on. The most obvious, and this is true in Jesus's world and ours, the word poor actually just means those who don't have food, shelter, adequate clothing, those who don't have the basic economic means to live a healthy and vibrant life. But the poor could actually refer to anyone who was on the margins of society due to their education, their gender, their family heritage, or their job. Poverty meant anyone that society put on the outside and shunned. 
So what does it mean in Jesus's kingdom for the poor to win? Does it mean if you're here today and you're struggling with poverty, all you have to do is get baptized and you'll walk out there and someone will hand you a million dollars? It'd be nice, but that's not true. So what does it look like for the poor to win? The first thing we see in this passage in Jesus's kingdom, the poor are seen and valued. Think about it, what it was like to be a first century Jew. Jesus comes to preach his first sermon. He goes to the lowest of the lows. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem where all the people in power were. He didn't go to a Roman city where there were generals. He didn't go to Rome where the emperor was. Jesus went to a small backwater town that no very few people in that world had ever heard of. And he said, the first thing he said is, good news is coming to the poor. I once heard someone say, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all things. When I was a youth pastor in, in youth ministry school, um, about half of the books I read were by a guy named Doug Fields. He was the youth pastor at Saddleback Church, the, the church that, that the Purpose Driven Life stuff came out of. If you've been in the church in a while, you've heard it. Doug Fields wrote like about half the books I've ever read in youth ministry. He was kind of my youth ministry hero. And then one day at a conference that he was hosting, I ran into him at dinner. And I gotta be honest, I don't feel like I'm the kind of person who gets starstruck. Like I really feel like if I like walked by and saw George Clooney, I'd be like, sup George. You know, like I feel like I would not like freak out, okay? Like Cameron Babb was here, which was super awesome. And I just loved his testimony and all that. But I feel like I don't freak out too much around stars, right? But I gotta be honest, I saw Doug Fields and I couldn't even talk. <laughs> I was like, uh, you're Doug Fields. And he was like, yes, I know. You know, like he, he'd gotten that a lot. And he just, he stopped and he said, what's your name? And I'm like, Doug Fields wants to know my name. And I'm like, it's Ryan, you know? And, and he's like, well, Ryan, tell me about how you're enjoying the conference. And I'm like, oh man, I said something to the effect of, I went to these, these con these, this conference for so many years. I keep learning so many of the same things over and over again, but I just need those reminders. It's so good to fill me up. And I feel like I'm, I'm you know, kind of embarrassed that I'm learning some of these things all over again after I've been doing youth ministry for 16 years. He looked at me put his hand on my shoulder, looked right into my eyes and said, Ryan, that's not because you're dumb, that's because you are a leader and leaders are learners. You have a great attitude. I am sure you are an amazing youth pastor. And he just walked away and I gotta be honest, the fact that like my youth ministry guru took five seconds to see me for like the next three months, I felt like as a youth pastor, I could not fail. For those of you getting baptized today and for those of you in the congregation, how much more excited should we be that Jesus sees you and values you? That Jesus doesn't just want you to believe in him, that Jesus believes in you. If you're here today and you are struggling with poverty, we don't preach the, the health and wealth gospel at this church. I'm not saying if you follow Jesus, then all of a sudden your financial problems will be taken care of. But what I am saying is that the God of the universe, G, that Jesus Christ, the King of the world and all creation, sees you and values you, and he says that he wants to bring hope into your life. And I don't know what that looks like if you are struggling with your finances, but here is some examples. Maybe Jesus will bring a new job or a new financial opportunity into your life. Maybe Jesus will put a friend in your, in your path that can help you learn how to make better financial decisions. Maybe for you, Jesus will tell you that, that you know what? 
Be content with what you have. I've been there a couple of times in my life where I was like, God, deliver me from this financial situation. And God took me and said, Ryan, you've got food, you've got a wonderful wife and kids, and you guys get along with each other. Why isn't this enough? But I understand for some of you have experienced a depth of poverty I cannot imagine and you open up the shelves and the cupboard is bare. Know that Jesus sees and that he cares and he wants to bring hope into your life. So what does this say to those of us that, that have the ability to help others? In Jesus' kingdom, the poor get second chances. One of the things I love about this passage is Jesus ends with this phrase to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In first century Judaism, that was known as a reference to the year of Jubilee. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25, but let me tell you what it was. In the Old Testament, God commanded that every 50 years his people were supposed to celebrate the year of Jubilee. And at the year of Jubilee, they were supposed to blow some uh, trumpets or horns, and, all, and at that year, everyone who was in debt their debts would be forgiven. For those of you with college loans, I know that sounds wonderful, right? Those of you paying off loans, right? Every 50 years, all your debts would be canceled. If you had made financial mistakes in your life and you had gotten, gone through a hard time, one of the things that would happen is you could actually be sold into slavery. All the slaves were supposed to be released and given second chances. All the land, the idea was that over the course of 50 years, some people get richer, some people get poorer. In ancient Israel, all the land was supposed to go back to the original families and everyone. In other words, for those who had made financial mistakes, God told his people to just take the financial etch-a-sketch and shake it up and let people every 50 years start all over again. This was a way to help those who had either made bad choices or those who had been victims of bad circumstances like famine, plagues, armies, all kinds of things. And scholars debate, why did Jesus end his first sermon with the year of Jubilee? We, we have no evidence that Israel ever actually did the year of Jubilee. There's no evidence that they actually ever did it, even though it's in Leviticus 25. So some Bible scholars think, well, Jesus was telling them it was time to do the first year of Jubilee. Some commentators will say um, that, well, Jesus just meant like a spiritual jubilee. But what I, what I really liked was what N.T. Wright said. He said, actually, it was neither of those options. Jesus was telling his followers that everywhere they went, they would be a jubilee people. And the church, the followers of Jesus Christ, those who put their trust in him, would enact jubilee everywhere they went. They would be little pockets of second chances for those who were poor and broken and hurt. All of a sudden, because of Jesus' people, we would start to see the poor win more and more. And I think we have to be honest, that's exactly what we see in Acts. In Acts, if you look at the book of Acts, what does the church do? People get their sin forgiven, their sins forgiven, but you also see them giving to the poor, and it says time and time again, they shared what they had and everyone, uh, with anyone who is in need. And we see that the early church did this for like such a long time. John Dickinson, in his book, Bullies and Saints, he tells the best and the worst about the history of the church. It's a great book if you wanna check it out. But in 250 AD, so this is like 220 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have a correspondence from somebody in Rome talking about the church in Rome. So the network of churches in Rome, think 250 AD, it was a bishop talking about the ministries of the church. And offhandedly he said, 
that they had 46 teachers and preachers. That's pretty good for one city. Even a city as big as Rome, 46 preachers and teachers. But in that letter, he says, they had 1,500 widows who were supported by the grace and loving kindness of the master. Think about that. Churches came together and supported 1,500 widows weekly in their church. Are you surprised that the early church grew? Are you surprised that even though Rome used all of its military might to stop the church, they couldn't do it? The church actually did such a good job of helping the poor, which was not a part of any government programs in those days. Nobody thought prior to Judaism and Christianity that poor people should be helped. Like nobody thought that in world history. They just wanted to keep people beaten down. The church came along and started helping the poor so much that the pagan cults started losing so many followers that they actually started to convince the Roman government to help the poor so that the church wouldn't win so many times. Think about that. And I think it would be easiest for us today, for some of us to say, why doesn't the church do that? Why doesn't the church support 1,500 widows? Well, the first question is, are you tithing? Right? I mean, we have to understand that that money didn't come from nowhere, that the people of God were so generous back then. But I think on a positive note, we have to understand that the modern church, with all of its flaws, still does a good job of caring for people. Most churches, on average, give 10 to 20% of their income away to other people, either to help them domestically, people who are suffering in poverty, or to go overseas where poverty is sometimes deeper than we can possibly imagine. When I looked at the Forbes list of the top 100 charities, I just looked at the top 16 and did some research. Nine of them were Christian charities. A study in Australia found that 39 of 50 of Australia's biggest charities were Christian, and the, many of the other 11 had Christian roots. One of the distinguishing marks of Christianity was concern for the poor. And this is why each year our church does so many different things to try to care for those in our community. Our teens all the time go and help out the Bethany Center or other charities in town. As a church, every year we do the Love Does Christmas Eve offering. And together as the three churches of the valley, um, we raised $49,000 to go towards three charities in our communities that help with economic, mental, and physical needs. As the people of God, we always have worked together to care for those in need in our community, and we need to keep doing so. In Jesus' kingdom, God's people have always given generously to the poor. Luke 12, puts it this way. This is Jesus, just briefly after he preaches this sermon. Here's what he says to his followers. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moths destroy. You know, some Bible passages, I will freely admit, are hard to understand, right? Read Revelations, you get into a couple chapters, and you're like, this gets weird quick, right? The second half of the book of Daniel, you know, if you think you have all of it figured out, I promise you, you don't, right? But this verse does not take a seminary degree to understand. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Like literally, most of us, if we went or took our cell phone and Facebook marketplace, we could go around our houses and literally take pictures and find things that we could literally sell and give to the poor. Now in 2 Corinthians, when Paul talks about giving, he shares the goal. 
He says that yes, you should give according to what you have and what you don't have. Pray, ask God to tell you how much you should give and then give generously, not out of compulsion, but with a right spirit. And Paul also goes on in the next chapter in that same letter to say, the goal isn't for rich people to give so much money that they're poor and that the poor are rich. The goal of Christian community is that everyone would have enough. If you're here today and you are rich and you have the ability to give, right, more than ever before in your life, I don't want you to feel bad or guilty about being rich. I think the scripture just wants us to feel generous. I'm a pastor, nobody would say I'm rich, but at 41, gotta be honest with you, I got a lot more money than I did at 24. And so how do I use that? Do I use that for like my 12th coffee run this week or do I stop and take a break to give more to the poor? One of my favorite people who lived this out was John Wesley. He was the 18th century revivalist and the leader of the Methodist movement in England. He's known for this phrase that some people love, some people hate, but I'm gonna read it to you anyway. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. What I love about this quote isn't that it applies to every one of us at all times, but what I love about this quote is that John Wesley lived it out. In his days, a good income was 28 to 30 pounds a year. And John Wesley kept meticulous journals. As a preacher, he didn't make that much money, but printing presses were becoming a real big deal. And so he would like publish his sermons. He would write little books and pamphlets. And all over England, because he was popular, people started buying all of his stuff. And very quickly, he started to become wealthy. And in his journal, he kept meticulous notes. One year, he had like 28 pounds. If he made 31 pounds, he would give one pound away. But then the next year, if he made 35 pounds, he would give five pounds away. One year, and this is an actual number from his journals, one year he made 140 pounds, okay? So if a middle-class salary is like 30 pounds, he made like over four times that amount, guess how much he kept? 30 pounds. At one point, John Wesley said in one of his writings, when I die, if I leave behind me 10 pounds, you, may, you and all mankind may bear witness against me that I have lied, that I am a thief, and I am a robber. If you study the, the Methodist revival, you'll hear about people coming to know the Lord and accepting Christ, but what often doesn't get mentioned is Wesley used all of his money to build orphanages for the poor, for children. He used all of his money to make English society better. In fact, some historians say there would have been an English revolution like the French Revolution where hundreds and hundreds of people died, but Wesley did such a good job of taking care of the poor that when English society was collapsing like everywhere else in the world, the church literally held the society up. When Wesley died, he only had small coins in his pockets and very little money in his name. He made 30,000 pounds in his lifetime, which equates to today, $7 million. And he gave almost all of it away. Now, my guess is that most of you don't have $7 million. If you do, you can take us all out to lunch. That would be great, right? But God has given us money, he's given us time and our talents. And most of us could find a way to be generous in our lives with what God has given us. Here's a phrase that I want you to take away from today. See something, do something, okay? Turn to your neighbor and on the count of three I want you to say, see something, do something. One, two, three. 
This week, I want you to pray and say, Jesus, help me to see the people in need. Jesus, help me to and do something about it. Have your heart open. It's gonna look different for all of us. For you, there may be a, a, a cause that God has placed in your heart. Maybe you care about immigrants or the unborn or those who are starving or those struggling with addiction. Think about the cause that God has put on your heart. Find a charity and give as generously as you can. One time somebody challenged me to give away an entire paycheck's worth. To most of us that sounds like a ridiculous amount of money, but so many of us in this room could do it without even noticing. Maybe for you, it's simply that God has put someone in need in your path, someone who is lonely, someone who is hurting, someone who doesn't have enough to get by, and the Lord is just asking you to stop, slow down, and care for them, either through friendship or money or both. We're not gonna read it today, but one of the passages in Luke, when Jesus talks about the poor, he says, when you give a dinner, when you spend time with people, when you throw a party, don't just invite the people who are like you, the people with the same income level. He says, invite the needy, invite people who cannot pay you back. And what we see in the early church and as followers of Jesus, man, our, our time that we spend with each other, it's not just about giving money to those in need. It is about us offering relationship and hope and love because in God's eyes, he loves us all the same. So as the band comes up today, I want you to just remember, see something, do something. See something, do something. And as our kids come in today, and join us for baptism. They're gonna come in and we're doing baptism and let me tell you how what we were talked about today about caring for the poor relates to baptism. You see, the reason we give to the poor as Christians is not just because it's the nice thing to do, not just because in our society today, caring for the needy is popular. The reason we give to the poor is because of who Jesus is and how he transforms us. In talking about generosity, here is how Paul ends what he is saying. 2 Corinthians 8, verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. I want you to understand today that we don't give to the poor just to be nice. We don't give to the poor because we have extra money. We give to those in need. We share our money and our very lives with people who need it because that's what Jesus did with us. He came to this earth, he made himself poor, he made himself like one of us with our frailty, with our weakness, and yet Jesus died. He became poor so that me and you might become rich. Kids, man, I am so glad that you are here today. We are talking about how Jesus wants us to be kind to those in need. And so as people come and get baptized today, and I'm gonna invite my friend Craig to come up, I want us all to realize that baptism represents that when you, that when you go down in the water, you are dying to your sin, you are dying to your old way of life, but when you come up from the water, when you come up from the water, it also symbolizes that you are to live a new life. Not only should you, should you walk away from your sins, but you should also 
Begin to live the new life that Jesus has for you. As you learn to live as Jesus lived, you should become more and more generous over your lifetime. And so Craig, I'm gonna ask you to step into the water and my wife Jamie's gonna read your testimony. Craig shares, Jesus became real to me when I felt his spirit during praise and worship. I want to be baptized today because it is the next step in obedience. Okay, you're good. Right there's perfect. Craig, have you asked Jesus to forgive your sins? Yes, I have. Is it your desire to follow him for the rest of your life? Yes, it is. Then, Craig, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, as we do this, I want you guys to feel free to just party and get excited. All right, next up, come on up. Next, we have Lauren. Lauren shares... I want to be baptized today because I want to recognize all that God has done for me my entire life, not just the times I have acknowledged him. Lauren, have you asked Jesus to forgive your sins? Is it your desire to follow him for the rest of your life? Then I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Next is Amy. Amy shares, Jesus has met me in all of life's challenges where I felt his presence and his comfort and how real Jesus truly is. I want to be baptized today because Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and I chose to follow him. Amy, have you asked Jesus to forgive you for your sins? Yes. And is it your desire to follow him all the days of your life? Yes, it is. And I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Next is Maya. Maya shares, Jesus became real to me when I switched from the Catholic Church to the Valley. Something clicked and made me realize who Jesus really was. After coming here for a few years, it set that in stone. I want to be baptized today because I'm ready to start a new journey and chapter in my life. Maya, have you asked Jesus to forgive your sins? Yes. And do you commit to following him for the rest of your life? Yes. I, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Man, guys, I hope, let's give these guys a round of applause one more time. So, man, guys, I want you to understand something. Baptism and transformed lives is not something we do. It is who we are. As our kids head back to the elementary, parents, we wanted to let you know, just let them get back there so that you can go and pick them up. But let me finish by telling you the story about this is who we are. The Valley Church is a part of a bigger tribe called the Church of the Nazarene. There was this man named Phineas Perzee that, that at, the, at the beginning of the 19th century, he had this ministry in LA, he was a Methodist pastor. 
and he began working among alcoholics, drug addicts, the destitute, the homeless, and the poor. And his ministry got bigger and bigger. They began seeing lives transformed. People began giving their lives to Christ. They began to help people out of their addictions and out of poverty. They saw thousands upon thousands baptized, giving their lives to Jesus. And people started to tell Phineas, you should, you should start a church. There are so many people coming to know the Lord. You should start your own church, your own denomination. And when asked what he would call it, he would say, we're going to call ourselves the Nazarenes. Because in Jesus' day, people would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was looked down upon by all of society. And Phineas Brzee said, society sees people in need, but we see people that God wants to transform and use, just like me and you. People would say, what good can come from these people in LA? What did they have to offer? And Phineas Brzee said, Jesus came to rescue us all and give us new life and we can go out, and we can see victory. We can see people's sins forgiven. We can see people healed. We can see people freed from the bondage of addictions and even poverty. We are called as a people and as a church to bring hope to the hurting, to love people, real people. The poor are not projects. They are people in hurting that are hurting and in need. They are people that God loves. They matter to God, and so they should matter to us. Thank you guys for your attentiveness to God's word. Remember today that in our world, how much you make is the goal, but in God's kingdom, how much you give is the goal. See something, do something this week. Thank you guys. You are dismissed. Thanks for joining us today. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app today to stay connected with all things The Valley. And if today's message impacted you or changed your life, share it with a friend. Because changed lives change lives.